we're on. Are we on now? Oh, it's starting. Okay. okay. Oh, all right. So, uh, uh, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, uh, serious uh, colloquia uh, seminar series. Uh, it's my uh, great uh, pleasure to have uh, Professor Golden Rashar uh, from the University of New Orleans uh, today. So, uh, uh, when it comes to malware analysis and digital forensics, uh, Golden is the man. So, uh, it's I'm 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 happy that he's uh, you know he comes he comes visit Purdue and it's very busy schedule. And uh, Professor Rashar is a professor of computer science and university research professor and director of the Greater New Orleans Center for Information Assurance at the University of New Orleans. Uh, Professor Rochard received his PhD uh, in computer science from the Ohio State University in 1995, and he has 35 years of experience in computer systems and computer security. Uh, he is a fellow of the American Academy of, of Forensic Sciences, uh, a member of the United States Secret Service Cybercrime Task Force, and chairman of the board of directors of DFRWS. Uh, this is a, uh, one of the top conferences devoted to digital forensic research. And uh, his research interests uh, mirror his teaching interests, including digital forensics, reverse engineering, offensive computing, operating systems internals, and malware analysis. Thanks. Thank you. OK, thanks for coming. Uh, this is sort of an, an interesting melding of two things that I'm interested in, uh, memory analysis and GPU malware. Uh, that's me. So I do university stuff and private digital forensics investigations and uh, computer security research. And instead of sleeping at night, I um, also do music photography. So there it is. Um, so one thing I, I, I teach students in uh, introductory reverse engineering classes is that malware um, uh, used to be a lot different than it is now. It was still um, um, old school malware was still potentially uh, dangerous, uh, you know, erased hard drives and did bad stuff. Uh, but a lot of it was just hacking exercises. And you found malware that didn't really have um, uh, very dangerous payloads and just um, uh, allowed people to experiment with uh, hard hacking problems. Um, what you see now is is monetized and targeted and weaponized malware that's being used not only by individuals but by nation states to uh, attack other people. Um, and the skills with a Z is turned into skills with uh, multiple dollar signs because you know you can now go and find websites where. Uh, you can pay for malware to be developed to do nasty stuff to people that you don't um, want to be around anymore. Uh, the good news is we have better tools than we had before. Uh, so we have things like uh, memory analysis and even commercial tools for doing reverse engineering of malware. Uh, but there's some new types of malware which are uh, emerging that um, we really don't have good tools for. And so this, is, this talk is primarily about um, encouraging interest in new uh, areas of malware research. Um, so I hope you'll uh, catch the bug and, and, and be interested in that. So one thing that you're interested in when you do malware uh, analysis is um, um, uh, the category that the malware fits into. I, tr I try to discourage students from caring too much about the categories because you, you end up in arguments about whether it's a virus or a worm or whatever. And it really doesn't matter except when you're um, uh, trying to speak the technical jargon. What's really more important are um, the effects of the malware and vulnerable targets and other uh, things. And so 
when you do malware analysis, you have typically have a checklist, right? You want to know what it does, uh, whether it's persistent. Are you going to get rid of it by rebooting? Uh, does it communicate with other computers? Um, really importantly, what data has been um, has been uh, has been affected, uh, modified, deleted, or exfiltrated? So I worked on a private case recently for a savings and loan that had actually been attacked by Chinese malware, and the worry was um, that some really uh, sensitive financial data that's there had been potentially compromised, and it turns out that all that had really happened is all the computers in the, in the, in the savings and loan had turned into botnet slaves, right? So that's good news for them, actually. They, they, were, they were happy to, um, to serve spam for a few days uh, and, and didn't actually have any damage beyond that. So that's interesting. And so one, um, one tool, uh, that's used in malware uh, detection and mitigation is digital forensics. So many people see the word digital forensics and think of CSI and other kinds of things where it's uh, primarily you know, legal and, and, and stuff like that. But, but digital forensics has a real role to play in malware detection and analysis because in capturing all the um, traditionally uh, non-volatile data off of a computer system, you get information that um, can let you figure out how the malware is made persistent. That's stuff that's in, for example, the Windows registry. You might get copies of, um, of binaries and maybe even if you're really lucky, some source code and stuff from a traditional forensics examination. So traditional storage forensics that deals with the contents of hard drives and thumb drives and stuff like that has been around a really long time. Um, of course, you know, digital, some digital forensics investigators are computer scientists um, and so uh, I don't, I'm not sure why it took so long for the realization that, wow, every time we pull the plug, uh, we're losing uh, amazing amounts of evidence. Um, but, you know, in, say, 2004, I have some examples coming up soon, uh, live, forensics was, uh, live forensics memory analysis was hardly, um, was hardly robust, right? We ran strings against things, basically, and that's all we had. Um, there's a lot of information in, in, um, in RAM that can aid in malware analysis, and so um, memory analysis is a really important aspect. Um, so for traditional malware, we already have nice memory analysis tools that can help you detect it and see what data has been exfiltrated or affected or whatever. Uh, it'll turn out that uh, uh, sort of non-traditional malware like GPU malware uh, which I'll talk about later in the talk, uh, basically break all our tools, as you'll see, okay? So a typical, how many people know about all about memory analysis already? So like volatility and, and tools like that, just to see. How many people have done any GPU programming at all, using CUDA or something? And how many people have seen G GPU malware, like in, in the flesh? That's, okay, that's kind of what I was hoping for. That's great. <laughs> um, so the traditional um, memory analysis workflow, in case you're not familiar with it, is uh, use some mechanism for capturing uh, memory from a system. So um, for virtual environments, you're really lucky because uh, facilities like um, um, uh, the suspend and snapshot stuff that's in, uh, that's in VMware Workstation and VMware Fusion uh, when you suspend a virtual machine, you get this nice uh, physical memory snapshot file that can be run right through 
uh, memory analysis tools like volatility. So capturing memory analysis really capturing memory dumps for analysis really means pressing a button to suspend the VM and and you're home free. On physical hardware, you need to run programs to do um, memory dumping. But once you have the memory dump, then you can analyze it using lots of different tools. And in the very beginning, around 2005, um, uh, that's the beginning of memory analysis as a real uh, discipline. Uh, you, there was a bunch of fragmented tools. You had one-off tools being developed, like someone would write something interesting in, per in Perl, and you can dump process lists using that, and someone else would write some other tool, and they're all incompatible, and you end up with a big tool chest. Things have really sort of moved and, and coalesced, and so now it's traditional to add new memory analysis capabilities to the field as a whole by just writing new plugins for, for volatility or one of the similar frameworks like that. So there's some new memory analysis you want to do. You just hack up your Python plugin, stick it into uh, volatility, and everyone benefits from that, um, that effort. Uh, once you have the uh, memory dump and you've done your analysis, what comes out of the other side is, is really interesting uh, evidence. Uh, that includes things like from a, you know, from a dead um, memory dump, uh, what processes were running on the machine, what processes may have terminated recently, what processes were, were hidden. So um, if you have things like direct kernel object manipulation, DCOM stuff, you can detect those things uh, rapidly. You can see what network connections were open, what files were open. Um, there are portions of the Windows registry, if you're on a Windows box, that are, that are, um, that are, that are only volatile. They're, they're, they're memory branches of the tree. Uh, so you won't find those things on disk at all. And you can find uh, encryption uh, keying material and chat messages and email fragments and you know the contents, contents of the clipboard and your bash history and all kinds of stuff that's in the memory dump. So in 2004, um, memory analysis looked like this, really. Um, you have a physical memory device like DevMem, and you grep minus I some keyword on it, murder in this case, and you see some information pop out that doesn't have very good context because what's physical memory, right? It's a collection of 4K pages in essentially random order that, that don't have any context. So it's kind of awesome if, you know, the person that was killed is named Sally and you see something like that, but you have to be careful that it's not, you know, fragments of some book about murdering a hamster named Sally or some, something like that. So uh, really had nothing going on at all. So. Around 2005, um, Digital Forensics Research uh, Conference, which is diffrbs.org, um, put out a forensic challenge where memory dumps were released and there weren't any tools really. And it was like, well, here's some memory dumps, write some tools. Uh, we saw a response to that, um, that effort that was really uh, promising. And so subsequent uh, forensic challenges, these are usually released around the time of the conference and you have about a year to go and write some interesting tools to tackle the forensic scenario. In 2006, more and more memory analysis stuff started to come out. Uh, you saw um, um, the beginnings of the volatility framework that everyone uses now. So things really, really changed. Um, that work starting in 2005 has now gotten to the point where you see, and uh, just a anti-commercial disclaimer. I was a technical editor on this book. My student is one of the co-authors and co-developers of Volatility. 
Uh, I, didn't, I don't make any money, so it's an awesome book, and you should um, at least have a look at it in your library or something. Yeah, Aaron Walters. Um, all four of those guys that wrote the book are really smart, and uh, we've gotten to the point where from strings in 2004, we now have a 900-page book on memory analysis uh, where there's no fluffy stuff in there. Uh, and, and the book is concerned a little bit with research and how to expand the state of the art, but you can really think of it as 900 pages of facts about memory analysis that we can already do. So we moved from one, one or two commands that are not even really uh, aimed at memory analysis, like grep and strings and stuff, right, to something that's pretty amazing. So now we can, for example, um, take a machine, uh, a, a, a virtualized environment where we imagine that some uh, nefarious activities are, are occurring, some malware's hidden and stuff like that, and literally snapshot it with one um, you know, with one click, run some volatility scripts. I'm not sure how the zoom is going to work here, but the idea is that I can zoom and let you see. Um, you see a process here, and there's various detection mechanisms running across the edge that show whether the process appears to be in whatever data structures are referenced there. And you see that uh, probably direct kernel ob object manipulation has been employed here to hide, um, hide one of those processes that's in the list. So you know that immediately without a whole bunch of investigation. So 10 years ago, you'd be pulling your hair out and trying to figure out how to find this stuff. Now, in 10 seconds, you'll know whether you have uh, that thing or not. Uh, this is from a real case where uh, uh, one party was being abused because the other party had purchased uh, commercial spyware and placed it on her computer without her knowledge. And uh, the only way she, she suspected that this was there is that she saw a $99 charge on her credit card contacted her attorney, her attorney contacts me, we take her machine, we just run it through a nice, um, a nice uh, tool chain and bring up a copy of her machine in a, in a VM, uh, do, do a little bit of stuff. Anytime you see the skulls on my slides, it means uh, um, um, defocus your eyes and concentrate on the idea and not, um, <laughs> and not, on, the not on the code. But the point is, from uh, you know, from her physical machine to a virtual machine where we do some memory dumping to a bunch of volatility commands, bling, there's the password that, that protects that commercial spyware. And now we know the person who installed it, and that person is up on federal wiretapping charges for installing spyware on someone's computer without their uh, knowledge. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's a good outcome. It didn't require reverse engineering the software or doing any, any really laborious effort that the person wouldn't have been able to afford. Instead, it's just you know a little bit of know-how, a few volatility commands, and bling, there it is. Um, we can also do things like, and this is some work I did at DFRBS for this year, we can do things like, how many people have heard of the compressed RAM facility in Mac OS X Mavericks? So, um, Mac OS 10 and modern versions of, uh, of the Linux kernel now to avoid swapping. Uh, instead of swapping physical pages to disk when there's memory pressure, they actually just compress the pages and stick them away in a little um, region of, of, um, of hoarded memory. Uh, you can do something like look at the Mac OS 10 virtual memory system uh, that comprises maybe like 75,000 lines of C or something. It's pretty daunting, but there's a, there's a pathway through there for 
compressing and decompressing those pages that end up in, um, in, in physical memory. In order to make those pages magically and transparently decompressed so that forensic tools will see the data that's there, just like if it was uncompressed, uh, you, can model, um, you can model this process, which is complicated to understand, but you can model this process in a thousand lines of Python or something, uh, and model all these data structures in Python, and then have tools that, um, that accurately um, uh, work against memory dumps that have compressed regions. So to see this sort of visually in case it's uh, you know, weird, look at the physical memory dump at the top. The, the red stuff is the area of physical memory that's dedicated to the compressor. Those are compressed pages. If you just look at this physical memory dump, you'll see that there are apparently regions, the white regions, that don't have any contents. Those are swapped out. But lucky you, if the swapping isn't actually to disk, but it's just to the compressor, it means there's a copy of that page in the red block, right? If you decompress that stuff, you can transform the memory dump to look like this and fill in the holes. Not all the holes, but some of them. And so when you look at the address spaces of individual processes that you dump out, you're basically filling in some missing stuff that you wouldn't have gotten before, right? And the outcome, just to see some practical results, is that the data that's all here, now I made it interesting by running interesting things, right? Because otherwise you fall asleep. But the data that you see there, the bad, um, the bad poetry and silly pictures and the fact that for some reason Flickr uses ASCII art inside of its web pages and all that stuff, those things are, um, were all compressed and would have been completely passed over by, um, by tools that didn't do decompression. Um, we're getting to the GPU malware thing, but I just have to uh, do my usual plug here. Um, Python's cool for writing uh, security tools. Uh, volatility requires uh, pure Python, so you can't have C um, portions and stuff like that. So we basically had to take a pretty serious performance hit on that memory analysis work. I now am the um, the lucky, I have the lucky title of uh, having written the slowest volatility memory analysis plugin ever written on Earth. And that's because Apple, in Mac OS 10.9 uh, uh, 10 Mavericks, impl implemented the compression and decompression of those pages using hand-optimized assembler. So if you think the assembler isn't still important, it actually, it is important. Uh, that thing can do 250,000 compression decompression cycles per second. That's 4K pages on an i7. It's super fast. If you write that same thing in C, um, you get about half that performance. If you write it in Go, which is something you should check out if you're looking for languages that um, are not offensive, um, uh, it's about half of that. And when you write it in Python, it looks like a splatter. Okay, so. That's just the way it is. This is, this is not Python's domain, um, compression and decompression code, so that's what you're stuck with. The point is, though, you can take very complicated problems in memory analysis and phrase them in Python and put them in volatility and build on all the other fantastical research that Andrew Case and Aaron Walters and all those other guys have done and do it really rapidly in a few days rather than starting from scratch. So in 2005, doing the stuff I just talked about would have been a mind-bending experience. Uh, now it's, it's pretty easy. So here's the shift to, um, to GPU malware. Uh, and there is a, there is a relationship, I'll, I'll point it out soon. 
Um, if you've done GPU programming, then you've already seen that, that GPUs are pretty amazing. So these are the processors that are in your uh, graphics cards. So just to flip to the concrete example for a minute, you can, pen, you can spend $150, and volume drives this, right? You can spend $150 for a, um, a card that you can plug into your computer system, which is essentially a mini supercomputer, right? It's got 640 one gigahertz cores, two gig of de dedicated RAM, and uh, tons of internal memory bandwidth. It's really uh, amazingly fast. Um, so GPUs are basically semi-autonomous computer systems that you have access to for not much money, and you're going to get them for free is the point, whether you want to spend the money or not. When you buy a new computer system, it's invariably going to have some GPU in it. They have lots of processing power. Um, the current generation of NVIDIA uh, graphics cards, uh, um, memory is retained across warm reboots. That's important for malware. Uh, if you warm cycle uh, your computer system, all two gig of RAM or the vast majority of it stays in place. So if you stuff information into GPU RAM and then reboot, it's still there. Uh, so when you pull power completely, of course it's gone, but you have something like a two gig uh, you know, uh, very dangerous to use thumb drive for free um, that just sticks, sticks around, memory sticks around. Uh, that GPU memory is completely separate and really importantly, um, modern GPUs have, uh, have really first class DMA uh, capabilities so you can actually um, uh, transfer uh, data to and from host memory without um, the involvement of the CPU. So if you look at a chart, you know this is this is skewed because this is this is floating point performance, right? Um, that $150 card I showed you just now is a peak performance of uh, 1.7 teraflops. That's 1.7 trillion floating operations per second. Uh, you know when I started computing, um, this would have been an amazing number that I would have never uh, thought would ever be possible. These other cards are more expensive, but they have huge amounts of power. So you're seeing basically the blue line Intel, or Intel, um, popular Intel chips, and the graphics uh, card stuff is just flying off the um, off the chart. So to do um, to do programming of graphics cards, use uh, CUDA or OpenCL or whatever. I'm just flashing this slide. The the um, presentation is going to be online. You can you can see it soon. The point is you can write graphics applications in C. You don't have to do something fancy. You used to have to do something fancy. So if you look back at this chart, have a look at this, uh, this pixel snort thing uh, here. This was um, a research attempt. How many people have seen the pixel snort paper? Anybody? This was an attempt on early graphics cards to, ex to accelerate snort, the intrusion detection system, by offloading pattern matching, uh, basically pushing network packets through the graphics card, doing, um, doing pattern matching to find um, in intrusion, uh, evidence of intrusion. Uh, if you read a, 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 a section from that paper, you see how hard graphics programming was uh, 10 years ago. You see that they're encoding packets and uh, making those textures and uploading them into the graphics cards and doing some crazy stuff and then checking occlusion to see if uh, geometric surfaces overlap. And it, it's really a crazy nightmare of, of, of programming. It didn't have much performance improvement, but that paper really starts, really started people on the track of um, of trying to use GPUs to do um, um, defensive 
computer security tools that are fast, right? Um, yeah. So the point is now GPU malware exists whether you like it or not. So it exists in paper form in front of you, uh, and, it, and it, it exists in, in the wild. We've seen examples of it, and it exists in uh, academic papers that have described it already. Um, GPUs are attractive for development of malware for a bunch of reasons. Um, one, you have tons of compute power that's not being used otherwise uh, in general, right? You have 640 cores that are mostly just sitting there if you're, um, you know, in a GUI environment with a few windows open and not running a 3D game. Uh, you can implement fast pattern matching stuff, and because of DMA, you can snoop on kernels, structures, and other areas in RAM uh, without really revealing that you're, um, that you're there. We don't have, unless you know of some, uh, we don't really have any publicly released uh, analysis tools for GPU malware. So the purpose of all this talking today is because we're trying to do something again in 2014 and 2015, like the 2005 DFRDBS challenge, by posing some hard problems involving GPU malware and encouraging the research community to go and try to build some tools. Uh, not having tools is pretty scary. So the version that you have in front of you, and I'll talk about this in a while, is deliberately weakened so that it's not evil and so that people can look at it in a few hours and understand what it can do. But if we have um, rampant GPU malware that has no, uh, that we have no ability to, to analyze, it's a huge problem. Um, so the real bad news is that until recently, there weren't any free tools to even, jump, even dump GPU memory. So you don't even know what's in the, um, in the uh, device memory. So through some cooperation with NVIDIA that I'll talk about in a while, there's actually uh, tools publicly available on a link, a website link that I'll give you. So you can go and pl start playing with GPU memory dumping and get an idea of what's, what the stuff is all about. So um, my, my, um, my point is that if, as, a re as, you know, as, as, as a research encourager, uh, this is a partial reboot for memory analysis because things like volatility are going to do basically nothing for GPU malware. Uh, if we write some new tools, then we can do stuff. So hey, this is an, another opportunity to make cool advances in memory analysis. On the flip side, it's, uh, it's a wake-up call that we currently don't have any tools for analyzing malicious uh, instances of GPU malware. So you would think that this would strengthen defense uh, a little bit, but it turns out not to have too much of an impact in general. Uh, GPUs are not completely autonomous, so they, they, GPU code in general, uh, the code that's executing on the GPU for, uh, for NVIDIA um, uh, GPU applications is called uh, a, a GPU kernel. Um, you can't have a completely autonomous execution on the GPU, and that's actually a good thing because you can't have runaway code on your GPU that you can't manage, right? You're not really given any tools for killing things on the GPU, and that's because there's a host side code requirement that drives some of the GPU stuff, and when the host side um, app dies, the GPU, malware, the GPU application stops as well. Uh, the bad news in terms of defense is if you can basically hide something like this somewhere that just periodically tickles the GPU to run its stuff, that's really all you need. And so there's not going to be much on the host side to analyze to figure out what's happening in the GPU. It's going to be primarily um, just some uh, driver. So um, 
backing up for a minute and talking about something that's already passed and, and, and to further motivate you maybe, um, I made a watered-down version of what will ultimately be the DFRWS challenge um, and uh, presented this at the DFRWS rodeo. So if you get a chance to attend DFRWS, it's a fantastic community. It's, uh, you know, 150 or so researchers there. We have one event every year called the Forensic Rodeo where people basically drink beer and hack on some forensic scenario. Um, this year's forensic scenario was GPU malware. Now, given that there's two and a half hours or so to analyze stuff, you can't fling some never before seen malware on people and expect them to do something. So I made a contrived example and I'll run you through that quickly to see like what it's, what it's about. The idea is to take this stuff that I'm going to show you and then make it a lot harder to solve in order to drive uh, more research to be developed. So uh, the forensic scenarios, there's a fit, I'm going to just blaze through this because there's more to talk about. Um, there's a fi fictitious company called Etouffee LLC that sells nasty frozen food and it's, um, it's owned by Niles Boudreau and Chloe O'Brennan is the, um, is the chief technologist there and the person that sets up the environment and does everything. Uh, just around the time that, that Niles uh, notices some suspicious financial transactions, um, Chloe O'Brennan goes missing and is gone. And outside there's a trash can that's on fire and uh, there's a bunch of source code in there that's burning up. And an investigator is assigned to the case who, um, because Chloe hacks in from outside while he's trying to do the network uh, analysis and stuff and he hasn't turned the network off, he suffers a heart attack. His head hits the, the computer system and actually bends the thumb drive <laughs> of the thing that he was storing evidence on. So this is, con it's contrived, right? But I'm trying to make something that seems realistic enough to be fun for two hours. Another restriction is that Niles only uses links. How many people have used links before? Okay. So he only uses uh, console mode Linux. He doesn't have any GUI and, and does all his web surfing like this, but you can see checking his financial transactions and stuff here, right? So the investigative questions are, what happened? Did, 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 um, did Chloe do anything? And what data was exfiltrated? And all that stuff. So inside the burning trash can, um, I revealed this evidence in little pieces. That's Photoshop burning, by the way, not real fire, <laughs> as you can see. Uh, inside, the, um, inside the trash can are fragments of the printout that you have in front of you. So there's stuff that if you sort of, I won't waste time, it's much easier to read on your printout, but if you look, you know, you sort of see hints that something weird's going on and you see a burned up page of the CUDA <laughs> programming guide. So probably some GPU stuff is involved here, maybe if you knew about that. Um, you see this weird chart of um, what looks like, I'll just tell you, looks like scan code stuff. Um, something's going on, right? So people are starting to get the idea of, of what's happening and then other things happen like a technician arrives and fixes the thumb drive and so on the thumb drive there's a transcript of a CUDA GDB session. So CUDA GDB is a, um, is a um, um, instrumentation of GDB that's released by NVIDIA for debugging GPU applications. So you can do traditional GPU, uh, sorry, you can do traditional GDB-based debugging against uh, programs that are running in the GPU and on the host. So they see a bunch of um, 
stuff in this transcript that looks awfully like the keystrokes that are there, right? So probably there's something going on. And then toward the end, I even release a program for translating the keystrokes back into readable text and stuff for people that are just completely lost. Because the idea of the rodeo is no one should burst into tears. Everyone should have a really good time, right? So um, by this point, by this point, smart people have already solved it, but we're trying to lead everyone along. If you looked at, um, if you looked at, um, at the system using volatility or traditional live forensic tools, you'll see some weird stuff going on, but you won't be able to do too much analysis without help like, um, like this CUDA GDB stuff. And I'll come back to the limitations of why I made the environment so crazy because it turns out that in many cases, the CUDA GDB wouldn't be possible. And if it's not possible, then you're basically lost in terms of what's being uh, stored in the, GD in, the, uh, in the GPU. So if you, looked at, um, if you looked at the available memory analysis evidence, you'd see something strange. There's a root process. I made it run as root deliberately so it would stick out a little bit. It's called whoopsie with three uh, O's. How many people know about the whoopsie with two O's? So on, 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 um, on Ubuntu, Linux, whoopsie with two O's is the crash reporter thing. When there's a system problem, it, it's responsible for notifying you and sending reports and all that stuff. Um, whoopsie is kind of a good name, right? Uh, so by adding an extra O, you do traditional uh, bad hiding mechanisms that can be discovered easily, even under the influence of beer and time constraints. Um, so the problem is dumping whoopsie and everything doesn't get you as much as, um, as, much as you'd, you'd like because a lot of the activity is happening inside the GPU. So punchline, as you already know, but they didn't know until the end, is that all that physical evidence, all the printouts that are, on, that are half burned up and the broken thumb drive and all that stuff points that you have GPU keystroke logging at, at play here. And this is in the style of... Um, GPU keystroke loggers that we've already seen in academic research, and the references are at the end. So you have a copy of this um, thing in your, in your handout, and I wanted to give you the basic idea. And if you can't read C or don't want to read C, just uh, avert your eyes for two or three slides. But if you're interested in, in, in doing keystroke logging against USB keyboards, there's a few basic facts. And this, these would be you, this. Same structure would be used whether it's GPU malware or host-based malware or anything else. So when you plug in um, when you plug in USB keyboards into a Linux machine, uh, one of these struct URBs gets allocated. And there's a few fields that we're interested in there. The one that's most important is this transfer DMA field here, which for USB keyboards points at an eight-byte buffer. Um, the first byte of that buffer is modifier keys that encode shift, control, alt, all, all the, the non-printing things. And then there's a, uh, a six-character um, buffer at the end and a mysterious byte that's not used. How many people have something like an X-Arcade controller or any kind of multi-button video game controller? No one? Uh, one common thing that people gripe about is these USB-attached video game controllers don't work very well when you press down lots and lots of buttons at the same time, like you and your friend are beating on all the buttons at the same time. That's because it's, you know, the hardware limitation here is six buttons down at a time for USB keyboards, and that's all that can be encoded. Um, so if you look in your, your, um, your nasty printout, don't have to do it now if you don't want to, you'll see this 
horrible block of code that looks like that blue thing that's there. Uh, some of the academic research on this uh, doesn't give you the correct recipe. There's a few pieces that are missing. I'm not going to point out things, but it's important to get the recipe right. Uh, the basic idea is this is a, this is a carving pattern for, um, if you're familiar with like forensic carving, this is a carving pattern for finding one of these things in physical memory. So the parts you can't see up there, we're sweeping across all physical memory, finding um, a, a structure that matches uh, certain patterns. If you want to just latch on to ve one very specific thing, it's the word uh, keyboard that's there. That's really helpful. Uh, that's not enough context, right, because you're going to find keyboard, the word keyboard all over the place. But all these other checks make it all work out. In English, it's something like if certain fields are aligned on certain boundaries and the buffer is eight bytes in length, that's a USB keyboard indicator, and I actually see the word keyboard and all these things are true, then I've probably found that structure. Okay. So this is how the malware works then. Um, even though I'm running that process as root uh, so that this is easily detected in two hours, as I said before. To make uh, USB uh, DMA-based um, keystroke loggers work, you need root access only for a couple seconds. You need access to sweep across memory, find that um, uh, struct URB, which contains the link to the 8-byte buffer where keystrokes are going to be appearing. And what we do basically is uh, do a um, uh, simple memory allocation in the host space in the host based uh, process right and then with the help of a kernel module uh, you can see the arrow switching here we're basically redirecting the physical address in the page table entry associated with that memory allocation to the struct URB um, DMA buffer field so now what you have is a user space process that has access to the the um, the 8-byte buffer where keystrokes will appear. Now, we don't want to keep that activity in user space because it's easily detected. So what you're doing instead is feeding the address to the GPU. Now the GPU just monitors the DMA address and stores all the keystrokes in GPU RAM. So you don't see any indication whatsoever of the keystroke data in user space. And you can look in volatility to the end of time, and you won't find anything that indicates that, uh, that things are being logged and the the really difficult thing is that the the components that you're left with after all the other parts are blown away is you see this user space thing calling some CUDA thing and passing it some V right and you see a GPU thing that basically looks like it's just examining some elements of an array you don't see any fancy uh, network or file IO or any patterns being searched for or anything it looks like a very boring computation that's actually doing uh, bad stuff by uh, logging all keystrokes. So the question then is why why is this such a big deal and why don't we just use CUDA GDB and the problem is solved, right? Because it looked like that was pretty simple in the um, in the example I showed from the rodeo. Uh, so we want to know what what if I didn't make such a contrived example and what if what if Niles like every other human being actually uses a GUI and has Windows running and uses Internet Explorer or, 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 or Firefox or whatever. Uh, and why did I do all that stuff? Was it just to be eccentric or was there some reason? And what, you know, I think you have a clue about what would have happened if old school forensics had taken hold and the guy would have just jerked the plug out 
Uh, you never have any evidence whatsoever of Chloe's activities probably, right, except for the physical evidence. Physical memory dumps are not going to help you much. You'll see the host side component, but you won't see any of the data that's actually in the GPU. So here's the, here's the, here's the, the deal. Um, first of all, that process didn't have to run as root, and uh, user space code that you're seeing could have been injected somewhere and, and been much harder to find. Uh, all the CUDA GDB stuff requires debugging symbols to work, and if you strip those, the tools don't work anymore. Um, the kernel module that you see being explicitly loaded from user space could have come from some other um, source as just pure data and been injected as a kernel module and then disappeared. Um, you can't debug CUDA applications that have terminated. So if you did something like rebooted the machine, all the keystrokes are still in the GPU memory and the GPU malware is now dead. But there's no way to see the data that's there because the process is dead. Um, if you started uh, debugging session against a live uh, GPU process and make a mistake and crash it, uh, then your ability to debug it is now uh, gone. And there are many, many more restrictions like on a machine that has a single GPU, unless you do a whole bunch of preparatory steps, I can't debug things if I have a GUI running. Thus, the reason that Niles uses links and stuff like that, right? Uh, yeah, so there's many, many things that, that are necessary for the debugging to work properly. And of course, malware is going to take none of the precautionary steps to make it easy to analyze, or else you wouldn't have bothered with this in the first place. So. Um, coming to some of the, the, the good news here, we do have some tools already. Um, uh, CUDA object dump and NV disassembler um, can, can, can generate, I know how small this is, can generate, um, this is a, a tiny little snip of this, can generate disassemblies of the um, intermediate level assembler that's used for the CUDA stuff that's running in the GPU. Uh, but we, honestly, does anyone have expertise with this stuff yet? So my experience in teaching reverse engineering is that already there's a big gap in Intel assembler and just basic assembler on host machines. Now you have a whole brand new, you know, poorly documented uh, language to learn, right? Potentially problematic. So um, running toward conclusion, the challenge is coming. Uh, it was intentionally, it was, it was, in, it was uh, originally going to be released earlier, and uh, um, how hard this has turned out to be, you know, eluded me at first and no longer. Um, but uh, we basically have um, have some materials now for for pushing this research forward, and that's what I'll talk about next. So it'd be really nice if you, if one of us. Um, you know, talk to NVIDIA and said, hey, we'd love some tools for dumping GPU memory. And they just responded and said, yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's do that. Uh, and uh, so I sent a mail to NVIDIA and expected nothing and got an almost immediate response back like, how can we help? Uh, so in fact, um, at this point, after a bunch of conference calls and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of um, uh, technical discussions about what's needed and stuff, and me signing an NDA that will send me to, uh, you know, um, somewhere forever if, if people misbehave, um, uh, tools are released. So there's a long link and a small link there, and I'll have them on the, on, on the end slide again. But basically, we now have, thanks to NVIDIA's graciousness and, 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 
an interest in trying to develop these, these tools because they also know that it's important to remediate this problem, right? We now have tools, uh, dump FB, uh, that can take starting and, and length uh, and, and GPU identifiers and dump GPU RAM. So now, if we want to, we can dump all the keystrokes out, whether the malware is dead or not. So you simply run the provided, uh, one, of, one of the provided utilities that gets installed when you install all the NVIDIA stuff, and um, then use this alpha version of uh, dump FB to dump stuff out. So if we, for example, took uh, let that GPU keystroke logger run and it has a one gig buffer, and I explained to my child recently how much data one gigabyte is, it's a lot. Um, uh, it's about um, 585 copies of the memory, 900 page memory analysis book if you only look at the text. Uh, so it's a lot. So we're running the keystroke logger with one gig um, of buffer and we're uh, also injecting another 585 copies of that book into the GPU and then running this uh, memory dumping stuff and sure enough there's the uh, text of the book and if you reboot there's the text of the book and if you reboot again there's the text of the book and if you look further and do a little decoding there's the text of the stuff that um, that Niles was typing including doing things like linksing to CapitalOne.com, and uh, you know you see his password there, Niles richer than Beyonce, and uh, all that stuff. So, and bragging about the fact that he's super rich and a sellout and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, these are the, the the it'll be posted. This is a little hard to read. There, these are these are some related work, including the references for the published examples of GPU malware that are that have been developed in the academic community. These are papers to read about um, GPU malware, um, including a really interesting one that came out um, um, uh, uh, this year that, that only looks at, uh, at textures that are stored in GPU RAM and deduces what web pages that you've visited because, say, Google's header has certain colors and stuff that render certain textures in the GPU RAM, and now I know you've visited Google. So pretty unexpected. Um, yeah, and if you go and look at those links, and this is just beginning, but if you monitor GPU malware uh, as a tag on Twitter, all the developments about the challenge are going to be posted there. And feel free to contact me if you have um, interest or questions. But yeah, we're trying to get something going here and encourage people to develop new tools. And, you know, tool writing is fun. So that's that's it for me. Questions? Yeah. So you said you saw some GPU malware in the wild? It's mainly Bitcoin mining stuff okay. at this point, All right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Thanks for listening. Thanks.